Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Welcome to Amicus, Slate's podcast about the law and the U.S. Supreme Court. I'm Dahlia Lithwick. I cover the Supreme Court for Slate, and thanks for joining us. So we thought we would spend this week really drilling down on these historic same-sex marriage cases that are going to be argued later this month, April 28th, at the court. These are probably going to be the most important gay rights cases the court has ever heard, but sometimes the issues are really technical and sometimes they're very hard to understand. So we are so lucky to have a fantastic Supreme Court Sherpa here this week to walk us through the cases. Paul Smith is chair of the Appellate and Supreme Court Practice and co-chair of the Media and First Amendment Election Law and Redistricting Practices at Jenner and Block in Washington, D.C., Paul has argued 16 cases at the U.S. Supreme Court uh, involving incredibly important free speech and civil rights matters. Among the big, big victories in his career has been Lawrence versus Texas in 2003. That was the landmark gay rights case where the court struck down sodomy laws in Texas and 13 other states. Paul was also former co-chair of Lambda Legal's board of directors. Paul Smith, what a thrill to have you here. Welcome to Amicus. Well, thanks. It's nice to be here, Dahlia. So I think in order for folks to understand the landscape we're in, help us understand how we got very quickly to a posture where 37 of the 50 states and the District of Columbia allow gay marriage, the other states don't, and the court agrees to hear this case now when they would not hear this case in October. Well, what, what happened was uh, that one of the federal circuits that, that ruled on these issues uh, ruled the other way. There had been a number, a, a whole wave of decisions from federal courts in the last year or so saying that there is a constitutional right to marriage equality. And then uh, the Sixth Circuit in Cincinnati decided, decided to case the other way. And so that created a situation where the court could no longer uh, stay its hand. It had to come in and tell us what the federal constitution says on this issue. And can you, you help us understand why the court agreed to hear four consolidated cases? I know there were a whole bunch of cases. You've been involved in the case in Virginia, for instance. Why four cases? Why these four? Well, these are the four cases that were heard and decided at the same time in the Sixth Circuit in Cincinnati. They, they come from each of the four states in that federal circuit, Ohio, Michigan, Tennessee, and Kentucky. They were all argued together. There was a single decision of the Sixth Circuit that ruled in all of the cases. And then all of the people involved that lost in, in that, that decision all petitioned the Supreme Court for review. And rather than picking any one of them, the court decided to just take all four and say, uh, we'll entertain briefs from all of you, uh, and a couple of you get to argue. Right. So, so can you help us understand there are actually two separate questions before the court, and they're slightly different. Can you help unpack what the two issues are that the Supreme Court is going to decide this spring? Right. There are two different claims. Uh, the first is the, a basic right to marry claim. Uh, and in a couple of these cases, there were unmarried same-sex couples who said, we want to be able to get married in our home state, and our home state will not marry us. 
Uh, the other question is a right to recognition of a marriage that was done in another state. Uh, so people in Ohio went to Maryland and got married and uh, came back to Ohio, and Ohio refused to recognize them as married, uh, c contrary to the usual practice, which is people get married in any of the 50 states or anywhere else in the world, the states usually recognize those marriages. So, so really, in effect, there's one question about states and their own right to license marriages in their own state. The other is just, can they be asked to recognize marriages solemnized in other states? Correct. Okay, Paul, I want to drill down even deeper if you would help us. And uh, I think as the same-sex marriages case comes up, there's the same issues that we saw in other uh, gay rights cases, which is this kind of toggling back and forth between sort of fundamental due process arguments and equal protection arguments. Is that right, that there are kind of two tracks uh, and uh, that arguments are made on both those tracks? Right. So the, the, the 14th Amendment to the Constitution, which was... Uh, you know, put in the Constitution back right after the Civil War has both a due process clause and an equal protection clause. And the due process clause has been read to create a, a right to liberty, uh, freedom from government interference in certain key areas of your life. Uh, the equal protection clause creates a right not to be discriminated against. Uh, and so in these cases, people are making both a liberty argument, a, an argument that they have a, a right to choose whatever spouse they want to choose, including one of the same sex, and a equal protection argument, which is we are being discriminated against because we as gay men and lesbians can't choose our partners and can't marry them. Them, whereas everybody else can. And has one been typically more successful, less successful? Is there one that if one were a betting person, one would bet on succeeding this time around? You know, it's um, if you look at the, the large number of successful arguments made in lower federal courts over the past couple of years, I think it's pretty well mixed which ones, the, which courts decide to go on a discrimination, equal protection rationale, and which ones decide to go on a liberty slash due process rationale, or sometimes both. It really is an option. If you look at um, go, going back to some prior cases that are similar, the, the sodomy case you mentioned in 2003 and the DOMA case, the Defense of Marriage Act case a couple of years ago, Justice Kennedy seems to like to talk about liberty a lot, although he, in the end, I think, uh, went on equal protection in the DOMA case. It's a little hard to predict how the court will go here. And I wonder, this is um, probably the special bonus question for constitutional scholars, but I wonder if, just in laying the table further, Paul, you could help clarify these different levels of what the courts call scrutiny. And I remember years ago describing in an article uh, when the court looks at something with heightened scrutiny, that's like, go ask your father if you can borrow the car. Uh, and when you look at something with lower scrutiny, that's like, go ask your mother. Uh, she probably will say yes. Uh, so there are these different goggles that the court uses to look at different sorts of laws. And one of the things that's a little bit confusing, I think, to lay listeners is when the courts and the advocates start talking about the difference between heightened scrutiny and lower scrutiny. Can you help us understand it in the context of the gay marriage cases? Right. So the, much of uh, the law in this area, both the liberty and, and equal protection slash discrimination area, is about when will the court uh, really look hard at the at the law and give it real scrutiny, and when will it just give uh, minimal scrutiny to it and, and let the let the government do what it wants to do? 
Uh, and there are various ways this happens. So in the uh, eco-protection area, most of the time when the government draws a distinction between two classes of people, that's perfectly legitimate. It gives a, a ticket to people who drive too fast. It doesn't give a ticket to people who don't drive too fast. Nobody thinks that is problematic or suspicious or anything, and it doesn't raise a constitutional issue. The question is what classifications, what, what line drawing is of the kind that we should worry about because we think it is more likely than not based on prejudice or bigotry or stereotypes. And so, of course, racial classifications in the law are very difficult to justify. Gender discrimination is difficult to justify. And so arguments are being made in these cases that laws that discriminate explicitly uh, based on sexual orientation ought to be treated suspiciously as well. So those are arguments that are being made for heightening the scrutiny, intensifying the scrutiny under eco-protection analysis. In the liberty area, there are certain liberties which the government obviously can restrict without any trouble. It can tell you how fast you can drive your car. Nobody thinks that's a problem, even though it restricts your liberty. But there are recognized uh, rights that the government isn't supposed to interfere with. Your choices about who your partner in life would be, your choices about who you will marry, are certainly ones that the Constitution protects with respect to different sex couples. And uh, so the argument is that same liberty ought to be available to same-sex couples, and that a denial of that liberty does require this higher scrutiny. And, and it's important to say that the court hasn't sort of set a level of scrutiny, right? We, we don't know exactly which goggles they use to look at these questions of discrimination against uh, gay and lesbian Americans, right? Right. And in fact, the court has multiple times kind of avoided being real specific and clear about that, even as it has invalidated um, three different forms of discrimination based on sexual orientation going back to the 1990s. Justice Kennedy has sort of adopted a, an approach of saying, I'm not going to be real um, doctrinaire about the and rigid about these levels of scrutiny. I'm just going to go ahead and rule. Paul, for folks who um, don't know constitutional history and case names uh, as well as you do, I wonder if you could uh, just give us a brief, brief history of where we are and how we got here and just uh, highlight, if you would, the low points and the high points in the constitutional background that brings us to where we are today. Well, before we got to issues of marriage or, or having the government recognize uh, same-sex couples and treat them equally, uh, we, the, the movement had to focus on the fact that it was illegal in, in some and indeed many states simply to engage in uh, same-sex sexual intimacy, that it was a crime to, to be openly gay. Uh, and those laws were tremendous barriers because they basically kept people in second-class citizenship. Uh, they prevented people from being out. Uh, they essentially made it difficult, if not impossible, for people to lead normal family lives as same-sex couples. And so the argument was these laws are unconstitutional under the same principles of basic liberty under the Due Process Clause that protect the right to access birth control, uh, protect the right to have an abortion, uh, protect various decisions people make about the upbringing of their children or, or about their own bodies. And they went to the Supreme Court in 1986 and made that argument and unfortunately in the Bowers versus Hardwick case lost five to four. Uh, and so the laws were still on the books and we now had the Supreme Court saying there was nothing constitutionally problematic about 
putting people in jail for being openly gay and engaging in, in gay sexual intimacy. This left the, the movement still stuck with trying to address sodomy before it could make any further progress. And it took 17 years before we were back in front of the Supreme Court on that issue in the Lawrence versus Texas case. Much had changed culturally. Many fewer states were still trying to uh, maintain these laws on the books. And the court came out at a different place, uh, six to three, saying that indeed it is unconstitutional to use the criminal law to punish people for the choices they make about their own life partners and their own, the form of sexual intimacy they want to engage in in their own homes. Uh, and so that huge barrier to progress was lifted. And uh, in the course of saying that, the, the court made two really important moves in Lawrence. It, it said that moral disapproval is not a justification for the state to discriminate against people based on their sexual orientation. And they recognized that the, the lifelong partnerships of same-sex couples are no different in terms of the role they play in people's lives and the partnerships that are called marriages for opposite-sex couples. So, so that's a fantastic segue to a, a little bit of audio that we want to play, uh, because amazingly enough, only 12 years ago, right, when you argued Lawrence versus Texas, the court itself, the justices were willing to make arguments that sounded like they were simply rooted in moral disapproval. So I want to play a little bit of a colloquy that took place between then Chief Justice William Rehnquist, yourself uh, defending uh, Lawrence, and Justice Antonin Scalia talking about reasons the court might want to continue to say that same-sex sodomy is illegal because look at the slippery slope that would ensue if they don't. So let's listen. If, if you prevail, Mr. Smith, uh, and uh, this law is uh, struck down, do you think that would also mean that a state could not prefer uh, heterosexuals to homosexuals to teach kindergarten? I think the issue of, of preference in the, in the educational context would, would involve very different criteria, Your Honor, and very different uh, uh, considerations. The state would have to come in with some sort of a justification. Justification uh, is the same that's, that's uh, alluded to here, disapproval of homosexuality. Well, I think it would be highly, highly problematic, such a, such yeah, a justification, if that were the only justification that could be offered. Uh, if there was not some showing that there would be any more concrete harm to the children in the school. Than only that the children might, might be induced to, uh, uh, to, to follow the path of homosexuality. And, and that, that, would not be, that would not be enough. Uh, Paul, that was not that long ago, and the court was willing to say, uh, you know, can't have homosexual teachers in the school. Uh, those arguments have fallen away pretty much in recent years. You just don't hear that said anymore, right? Well, I think it's fair to say that people don't. Uh, talk as if employment discrimination of that kind would be justifiable. It is true, I think, that Justice Scalia would continue to say that moral disapproval ought to be a justification for discrimination against uh, people who engage in a uh, what he would call a, a, a gay lifestyle. That His view of the Constitution is that that's something the state can argue, and he will continue to have that view, I would think, in this case, as he has done in, in the Windsor case and the Defense of Marriage Act case a couple of years ago. Uh, but even he, I think, would not be uh, probably talking about how we should be excluding people from being a school teacher at this stage. Things, things have moved on. 
And it's interesting because in lieu of those kinds of arguments, and I remember those arguments very well, but in lieu of that, in a very compressed amount of time, we hear a lot of process arguments now, right? We hear about states' rights and they have the right to determine, you know, their own definition of marriage. We hear a lot of voters' rights, you know, why can't the voters of Michigan just determine what's best for them? So I feel as though we've had a huge shift away from these moral arguments to very, very technical process arguments. It's almost as though you can't say what you used to be able to say. And so now you talk about technical things. Well, right. There's two things that that people are still talking about. One is what you call process arguments. Whenever a a court is going to say that a law is unconstitutional, that by definition will interfere with the result that the democratic process produced, either through a a legislative action or in some cases through a popular vote. And so people start saying, oh, this is terrible. Courts shouldn't interfere with democracy. We should let the democratic process rule in this area. And, you know, that that argument in some ways is illogical because all it's doing is saying we don't like the idea that there's going to be an interference with democracy in this particular area. But, you know, that's sort of the definition of constitutional rights that they are enforced against democratic institutions. The other area of justifications that people are still trying to articulate involves children and whether or not children will in some way be made worse off if all the states of the country are required to uh, marry same-sex couples. Right. That's the the argument I described recently in an article as the whoopsie baby argument, which is the idea that, you know, same-sex couples don't inadvertently get each other pregnant and because they're uh, responsible and careful, they should be denied marriage, whereas opposite sex couples can accidentally make each other pregnant and they need to somehow be incentivized into marrying. And that incentive goes away if same-sex couples are given the marriage rate. Is that I'm sure it's not a fair characterization, but is that about... It's actually about as fair as you can get. It's a curious argument in a couple of different ways because it doesn't explain exactly why these heterosexual couples would no longer get married when they have an accidental pregnancy uh, just because gay people are getting married. And, of course, if the goal is to prevent children being raised by unmarried parents, it seems a little bit odd to continue a policy which necessitates the fact that the children of same-sex couples will have unmarried parents because they don't have marriage available. I wonder if I can ask you the slightly personal question that is, you know, your kind of arc of your story coming into these cases is quite extraordinary, right? You clerked for Justice Lewis Powell. He voted to uphold the Georgia sodomy law, famously in Bowers versus Hardwick, uh, a few years after you clerked. And then there you found yourself in front of the court arguing effectively the same case in Lawrence. And the court sided with you six to three. Uh, That must have been an amazing moment from kind of where you started as a young lawyer to where you ended up at Lawrence. It was a remarkable experience for a lawyer to be uh, in the right place at the right time to end up arguing that case. And it truly has been um, a transformative experience for me personally as well as transformative for the law because uh, for the reasons I was explaining earlier, Lawrence, by taking morality and moral disapproval off the table as a justification – really set the table for all the progress that we've seen since in in terms of um, relationship recognition or marriage equality. But for me personally, it really has uh, uh, created a whole different sense of involvement in the movement and recognition for having done one single thing in my life that was truly transformative and important. 
I, I feel like you've done an awful lot of things that were transformative, but that certainly, I, I think you can't uh, be where you are today on marriage equality without Lawrence. And in that sense, no. I think it was, uh, you're quite right, it was a landmark um, case. I wonder if we could play part of the opinion announcement in Lawrence. This is Justice Kennedy reading the opinion of the court. And tell me, uh, after we listen to it, what it was like in court that day. We conclude the rationale of Bowers does not withstand careful analysis. Bowers was not correct when it was decided, and it is not correct today. It ought not to remain binding precedent. Bowers versus Hardwick should be and now is overruled. So one of the things that was interesting about that whole experience was because it was the last day of the term, we knew the day that the court was going to announce the opinion in Lawrence. So we were all there. All the lawyers involved in the case, many other people involved in in the movement for equality were there. And so when they come out and announce these cases, they don't tell you who won at the beginning. They just start reading the opinion. Uh, And Justice Kennedy took uh, quite a while to tell you the facts of the case and the procedural history and everything, but he finally gets to the point where he rules that Bowers versus Hardwick is overruled, as, as, that, as, you, as you just heard. And that was truly one of the most amazing experiences in the Supreme Court courtroom because the, the, the emotion that swept through the room, the, the, the weeping on the part of some people, the sense that history had just occurred – cannot be overstated. The uh, Bowers case was a really awful barrier to progress and, and was viewed by many people as just an insult because it basically said you have no constitutional rights at all. Uh, if you can put people in jail simply for who they choose to have sexual intimacy with, then what, what rights are left to people? And then suddenly it was gone. I mean, it is extraordinary if you think about the fact that Bowers is decided in 1986. It's not a, an enormous uh, span of time until that is completely gutted uh, in 2003. And I think it reflects, and you must be asked this a lot, this trend, which is just meteoric, quick change from complete intolerance, homophobia, and fear to broad social acceptance. Can you give us a theory, if you have one, for what accounts for the fact that, you know, if you look at social approval of things like abortion or, you know, women's rights, in many ways, we've been flat. You know, the curve is flat in this country for decades. And yet, absolutely the opposite has happened in terms of gay and lesbian rights. Do you have a, a sense of how it is that this happened? Well, of course, we're starting from almost zero in terms of uh, real tolerance and understanding back in the 70s and 80s. Uh, and the the ways in which things change in part have to do with the changing perception about what it is that gay lives are like. Uh, back at the time of Bowers, the discussion was all about sort of uh, – quickie sex, there's an idea of sort of uh, sex itself. And there was a flat statement by the court that there was no connection shown between the sexuality of gay people and family or relationships. But by the time of Lawrence in 2003, the court understood that uh, gay men and lesbians have long-term relationships that have the same meaning in their lives uh, as marriages have for uh, other people, and that they were, in fact, forming families, had formed families, raising children, and living very conventional lives. And so I think it was much easier for the court to view the protection of those lives and those choices as a perfectly normal and and indeed compelling thing to do 
with that perception. And, you know, obviously the visibility of the community had changed dramatically in that period of time. One factor was, of course, the tragedy of AIDS back in the 80s and 90s, which caused so many more people to be known and visible. Uh, galvanized a movement, caused much tragedy, but also changed the relationship between the straight world and the gay world in a very fundamental way. The, the media helped, and people just started coming out more. So uh, a, a lot had changed, and, and a lot has continued to change. But you know, in terms of progress, you do need to recognize we're still, in these cases, dealing with de jure segregation, as they say. Uh, the, the law explicitly distinguishes between gay people and straight people in terms of basic legal rights. Uh, that hasn't been true of women or African Americans for many, many decades. So we have progress being made, but just progress toward getting legal equality of the most basic kind. I'm going to ask you one last question, Paul, uh, and that is, and you can uh, opt not to answer, but it's all eyes are on Justice Kennedy again. Uh, all eyes seem to always be on Justice Kennedy in these cases. And, uh, you know, sometimes I shorthand it and maybe this isn't fair. You know, which Kennedy is going to show up? Is it Dignity Kennedy, you know, who wrote so eloquently in uh, the Lawrence case that you argued, who wrote so eloquently in the Doma case? Or are we going to get states' rights, Kennedy? Uh, is he going to, you you know, is he going to draw the line here? And I wonder if you can tell us, having watched him for so many years in this context, uh, whether he is going to be willing to kind of finish what he started in the gay rights question. My own uh, prediction, and I, I don't usually predict things like this, but my own prediction based on having seen him uh, handle gay rights cases now three times over the last 20 years, based on the way the court has behaved in the last year, uh, letting so many of these marriages uh, go through without staying it, uh, is that the five votes are there and that Justice Kennedy will be writing another eloquent opinion saying states' rights are fine, but in some areas you have to stop discriminating, and this is one of them. Well, uh I always tell my listeners not to get involved with betting, but um, if you're going to bet on these cases, I would take Paul Smith's word over almost anybody. Uh, Paul Smith <laughs> uh, is chair of the Appellate and Supreme Court Practice, co-chair of the Media and First Amendment and Election Law and Redistricting Practices at Jenner and Block in Washington, D.C. He's argued 16 cases at the U.S. Supreme Court, including Lawrence versus Texas, the historic gay rights case argued in 2003. Paul, thank you very, very much for joining us on Amicus. It was really a pleasure to have you. It was entirely my pleasure. Thanks, Dahlia. And before we say goodbye to you today, we just want to remind you that this is just one of a whole bunch of podcasts in the Panoply Podcast Network. So here's a taste of just one. I'm Gretchen Rubin. On this week's episode of Happier, my sister Elizabeth and I discuss why you should sometimes treat yourself like you'd treat a toddler how to work on a good habit when your partner isn't into it, and much more. You'll find Happier at iTunes.com slash Panoply or at Panoply.fm. And that is going to do it for this episode of Amicus. We would love to hear your thoughts. You can always send us email at amicus at slate.com. That's A-M-I-C-U-S at slate.com. Excerpts from the Supreme Court's public sessions this week were provided by OYE, that's O-Y-E-Z, a free law project at the Chicago Kent College of Law, part of the Illinois Institute of Technology. 
Thank you also to the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities, where our show is taped. Our producer is Tony Field. Our managing producer is Joel Meyer. Andy Bowers is our executive producer. Amicus is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of fabulous and terrific podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. I'm Dahlia Lithwick, and we will be back with you soon for another edition of Amicus. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.